Nachiomi for the Orthodox Union, Sefer Yoshua, the Book of Joshua, Perak Chafbeis, Chapter Twenty-Two, Rabbi Bini Marilis. As we near the end of the Book of Yoshua, we come across a very, very disconcerting event as it relates to the departure of the two and a half tribes of Reuven God and half the tribe of Menashe. The wars have all ended. The Jewish people are settling in their land. The Levim have their cities. The Aremikla, the cities of refuge, have been established. And these gentlemen are discharged, essentially. They have completed their task. Fourteen long years. They have done what they had agreed to in the time of Moshe which they had reaffirmed at the beginning of the reign of Yehoshua. And now they're done. And in their departure, we come across a very strange sort of events. An action that they partake in, a misunderstanding on the part of the rest of the Jewish people, a clarification on the part of the two and a half tribes, and ultimately, everybody is settled okay. Interestingly enough, it's not the first time that these tribes have put in motion a set of events that are being misunderstood or misconstrued. The two and a half tribes, or the two tribes, Uven Gad, the half tribe of Menasha, which was added later, the two tribes, in their initial request to reside on the east of the Jordan, also subjected themselves to misunderstanding and being misconstrued, in that case, at the hands of Moshe, in this case, at the hands of the rest of the Jewish people. In the earlier situation, they make the request of Moshe, and Moshe has some words for them with respect to them leaving their brethren to fight the battles on their own as they go and settle. They then have to explain themselves that their intentions were good and that their thinking was proper and they were doing it with all righteousness and kindness and goodness and not any sort of selfishness or self-interest. And here we'll see something similar. Would they behave in a certain manner? Would they do something? And then have to clarify what they're doing when it seems to be understood, what we'll find out to be the wrong way. But as we begin, begin the chapter, we'll also see a very important piece in the story. Is their preda, they're leaving Yahushua, they're leaving the Jewish people as they head back towards the eastern shores of the Jordan. Parakhaf Bay is chapter 22. Azikra Yahushua la Reuveni Vlagadi Vlachatzimate Menashe. Then did call Yahushua to the Reuveni, the Gadi, the families. He calls out to them. The Dasofim writes, Lone Emar Kara Ella Yikra. The text of the, of the verse does not say the word Kara that Yahushua called, but rather he did call. 
these types of differences in language are not by accident. Nireh, it seems. Ki Yehoshua kulam yachad. Yehoshua did not gather all of them together at the same time. Mitam zen ne'emar, yikra uveni. He called to the people of Reuven, but not to the entire people of Reuven, as it would say later on. Why? That the separation, the parting, these people leaving him, going back to their land, was difficult for him. Because of his concerns about their future, Kinsam. He gathered them. And then he brought them back again and again in groups. The leaders of the group and in fact the regulars of the group. It was very difficult for Yeshua to say goodbye to this group of people. It was very difficult for him to see them go, to return to their homeland, to be with their families and to be with their people. And that he continuously desires that they remain. There is a Midrashic text that talks about how Yehoshua walked with them as they headed towards the Jordan. And that he went along the path with them. What was called Livui. That he led them out. He led them, strolled with them along the way. And that they in fact then strolled and brought him back home. And that he in fact went with them again. That there's this this notion of sad departing, of it making it being difficult for him to separate from them, in appreciation for what they had done, in appreciation for their role in the Jewish people, in appreciation with respect to their role in the settlement and the establishment of the Jewish people and their national homeland. Yeshua speaks to them in verse two, Bayomar Alehem, Atem Shemartem Eskoshetziva Eschem. You have been very careful, very mindful of your charge, of your obligation. And you have fulfilled everything that it was that Moshe Rabbeinu asked of you. And you listened to everything that I voiced and commanded you. You have not left your brother's for many, many days until this day itself. And you have kept to all that it was that God had commanded of you. You've been very careful and very mindful of those as well. To go out, to go before, to lead, to be chalutzim, to be pioneering soldiers, to be the first force to enter into battle, to lead the Jewish people into war. You've done a great job. Completely on a side note, we see here the notion of how one is to praise another person. It could very easily have been, in short shrift with a few words, thank you for you do, for doing what you did. But here Yeshua is very careful to define and to delineate exactly what they did right. And that's a very specific type of praise. A person likes praise, people like to hear praise, like to be praised. They like to have nice things said about them. And it's most special when a person takes note of the very specific things that a person does well and does right. And here in following the directions of God, 
in following the directions of Moshe, and specifically in his case, following what it was that he had commanded them, above and beyond what they may have had to do in, in, at the outset, at their initial agreement, Yeshua specifically defines the praise for all those. And now he charges them with something. This is a now that God has given to our people, to our brothers, and to your brothers, exactly as he had promised. So now you may go. You may turn and go home, go back to your tents, go back to your land, go back to your inheritance that Moshe had promised you, It's the full circle. We mentioned previously in other chapters the notion of the completion of all the promises made in the past. And here's another one coming to fulfillment, coming to fruition. But Yeshua doesn't just leave them with that. He adds, Pasuk Hei. Rakshimu ma'od lasos es ha-mitzvah v'es ha-torah shetziva es ha-moshe er adunai However, also be very mindful and very careful and be very watchful to do the mitzvos and the Torah that Moshe, the servant of God, commanded you. Yeshua lists off a whole set of charges, of obligations, of expectations, of commandments to them with respect to their religiosity, their keeping fast and holding strong to Torah and mitzvos with some very specific language. Listen to what he says. It's not a notion of yira, it's not a notion of fear of punishment. It's purely on the ahava side, the positive notions of Torah. Says the Dasofrim in explaining each specific point in the chapter in the in the in the text. Ha mitzvah, heim hahoraos hamasios, active physical mitzvos. Ha Torah, hamusar vahahora haruchnios haruchanis haklalis shel halokim. That's all the teaching. That's the spirituality. That's all the musar. That's there. Liahava. Love of God. Loving God of the Jewish people. This is a statement that's in many places, in a number of places in the Torah. That teaches a person to find the proper and correct path for those things and those specific rules which are not exactly set out in the Torah. What we call above and beyond the letter of the law. A person has to seek out what it would be, the derech Hashem, the manner of what it is a Kaddish Baruch Hu would want of us. So enlisting them out first, he says, careful with Torah and mitzvot. Love God. Follow the path of God. Lishmor mitzvot. So what's this? Kipshuto l'kayim eskala mitzvot shebat Torah's Moshe. Here it is simply to just be careful with all the mitzvot that are in the Torah. Following in the path of God comes first in the verse before keeping the mitzvot. 
He says because to be able to fulfill the mitzvos properly, completely fill them and do them in the rest in the best way, a person has to establish first the path in which they can possibly do such a thing, the mindset, the intent, the focus that they can possibly go and fulfill the mitzvos. Yoshua is giving a, uh, a muster shmuz. He's teaching them how they have to go about their business when they return home. Uladavkaba. To cleave to God. To stick to God. Ayide halicha b'tarche Hashem b'kiyah mitzosav says the Dasofim based on following the path of God and fulfillment of the mitzos efshar l'hagiyah l'dveikus. A person can reach the level of cleaving and attaching themselves to God. That a person can be attached and tied together in all of his manners to God. To serve God in all one's ways. Language we know most famously, of course, from Shema, says it So from Halev Kolel, let's call her with Sonos The Lev includes generally speaking, all of one's desires and all of one's inclinations, all of that has to be focused towards Avodah Hashem, serving God, Bechol Nafshechem, Mesiris HaNefesh. All of those things, what it is that Yeshua tells them, maybe perhaps his final conversation with them, his final correspondence directly with them only, this is what Yeshua lays out for them. And lastly, verse 6, V'yivarchem Yehoshua, Yehoshua blesses them, V'yishalchem, and he sends them. He sends them and they go to their tents. And what you have now in the next three psukim, in Zayin Ches, sorry, next two Zayin and Ches, it was that appear that you have some level of a, of a, of a slight repetition. Um, you have a slight distinction going into uh, verse 9 that may separate between Menashe here and the other two tribes, which is worth mentioning. We have not yet talked about the idea that the tribe of Menashe comes along a little bit later with respect to the story of the two tribes. That is to say that the initial discussion was with Reuben and God, and that the tribe of Menashe comes along a little bit later and they're added on. Perhaps one can offer the idea that the tribe of Menashe is added on to sort of serve as a connector between the community on the eastern side of the Yardin and the community on the western side of the Yardin. It's to keep a tie and to keep a connection that you have families that sort of uh, will straddle both sides of the river. They will keep the communities in contact with each other and connected to each other such that they remain united as one people and one population. To that end as well, though, since Menashe is a later addition, you have to keep in mind that perhaps just Ruven and God are the ones who the Chalutzim, who the pioneering lead soldiers, who have made the agreement initially with Moshe Rabbeinu, who then should um, benefit most from the spoils of war and the blessings that Yeshua has offered. So thus comes verse Zion as follows: when he sends this set of tribes home as well, he blesses them too. Um, they too got a portion on that side of the land, and they got a portion in the, in the Israel side of the land from Yeshua, and he blesses them as well. So now when verse 8 tells you, it can be read one of two ways. It can be read that he speaks specifically to Shevet Menashe, or that he's speaking more generally to all two and a half tribes 
uh, with respect to the uh, spoils of war. Yimra aleihem leimor, b'nechasim rabim shuvu al aleichem mikne u'vmikne rav ma'od b'kesu b'zahav menechoshes u'vazel b'slamos habim ma'od chilku shal oivechem imachechem. So it could be read again both ways. Perhaps it's simply going to the Sheva Menasha, which would be a little bit odd per se. Um, but more likely that it's all the tribes themselves, that since they participated in the war and much was gla- gained and gleaned from the battles um, and spoils, that they should split it amongst everybody, that it shouldn't be um, just amongst themselves, but everybody, all the, all the different tribes, um, all the different people that, had, that remained perhaps, all those different possibilities with respect to the spoils of war, they should benefit from them as well, since in a sense they participated by virtue of the fact that they stayed home, or they were watching cities, or they were watching the women and the children, or just the women and the children themselves, everyone should benefit from the spoils of victory and all that was gained um, from the different tribes that were conquered in the land. Now we get to the heart of the matter of the chapter, perhaps. What happens next is the actions of B'nai God, B'nai Ruvain, and Menasha. Verse 9. They go home. They go home. They don't go home quickly, as we mentioned before, that it takes time for them to leave Yoshua. They go, they see him, perhaps, as the Malbim writes, that they went to see him in his home in Timnah Serach. Then they returned to Shiloh. And then it takes them a while to get home, but they head towards the land of the Gilad. The land of the Gilad officially is essentially in Gad, which is the center of the two and a half tribes there, on the eastern side of the Yardin, and that's the direction that they're heading. Verse 10. They get to an area of the Gilosa Yardin, the area surrounding the Yardin, the area is near the Yardin. And here is where it turns. It's essentially our first crisis for the people once they're already settled in the land. What do they do? They build a an altar, a very large altar, an altar that everybody could see, an altar for vision only, it seems, not for actual use, but they build an altar. So before one continues... It's an opportunity in this chapter, perhaps different than many of the other chapters, to consider what they were thinking in doing such an act, what the Jewish people are thinking in response to that act, and then ultimately with respect to the clarification. And lastly, as is always the case with these with these stories and this section of Navi, what does it tell me? So here they build a very large Mizbeach, where, very importantly, is the fact as to where they build it. And it goes as follows. The Jewish people heard, Where is this? They built a, an altar... The two and a half tribes built an altar. Hamizbeach, Limizbeach. We'll see what that word, that term means in a moment. Emul Eretz Kanan, opposite Eretz Kanan, 
El Aver B'nai Yisrael, on the side of B'nai Yisrael. The Malbim explains, and other commentaries agree, that they build this altar not back where they live, but rather on the Israel side of the Yardane, which raises some significant questions. Perhaps it appears as if they're setting up an alternate religious center, separate and distinct from Shiloh. Perhaps it is they're setting up a location for them that's closer, that they can offer korbanos. It's not clear what they're doing. They don't ask permission in advance. They don't discuss it openly with the rest of the population beforehand. They just do it. And if in fact it's on this side of the river, so then it can be viewed as some level of a rebellion. If it's on their side of the river, then it would more likely be viewed as setting up a satellite shul, quote-unquote, from the from the Mishkan, even if that is not appropriate or correct, but it can be viewed that way. Here, setting it up on this side of the river raises some other questions and is very difficult. When it talks about the term Hamizbeach, not just Amizbeach, but Hamizbeach, perhaps one can understand it, and some of the commentaries seem to hint at this idea, that they build it in a form that is similar to the Mizbeach, the altar itself that exists at the Mishkan in Shiloh, which only makes it more odd and more difficult to understand what they, in fact, were trying to accomplish. But in fact, they do this. And now we have a speculation. Why did they do this? The Jewish people want to know. They're very upset. They're very angry. They're ready to go to war, as the next verse tells us. Yisrael, the community gathers at Shiloh to go to war. Which brings us to verse Yud Gimel, where a very important and very interesting, striking difference takes place here. And this maybe perhaps is part of why the story is mentioned. Beyond the obvious with respect to what the two and a half tribes were trying to accomplish and their explanations for it and the underlying issues involved with it, Perhaps what's very significant about the story is the manner in which the Jewish people go about figuring out what is going on here. It's very peaceful. It's very respectful. It is essentially a drish v'chakira. What you have in halacha, when you talk about um, a situation that comes to a court, that you have to ask the questions and you have to investigate and you have to look in and you have to speak to the different people. You need the adim, you need testimony, you need witnesses to ask questions. And in fact, they do that here without jumping to conclusions. As opposed to stories which we'll read about later in Tanakh, where they do in fact jump to conclusions and they don't speak it out and they don't figure it out. Here, it gets clarified as follows. In the person of Pinchas. In verse 13, they tell us that Pinchas is sent to them. He's not alone. Verse 14 will tell us that he's sent with ten Nisim, ten tribal leaders, ten princes of the Jewish people representing the tribes that exist to go. Pinchas represents peace, and at the same time he represents Kinas Hashem, uh, the jealousy of God. So he's a he's a careful watcher. 
He's a soldier of God. At the same time, he is blessed with the bris shalom, the covenant of peace. He represents the perfect person to go and investigate the situation. He's the ultimate um, investigator. He's already served as a spy. Um, later on, he will serve in other capacities. He's a significant force in the Jewish people. And his presence alone must have engendered some level of fear, but at the same time, some level of comfort on the part of the Jewish people. Pinchas is going. Pinchas is the person. Ten princes from the different tribes. These were gavras. These were significant people that were sent. Not just anybody that was sent with Pinchas. This is a legion. This is a group. This is a, um, a party for um, peace negotiation, essentially. The great leaders of the Jewish people going out to find out, to investigate, to bring back a report as to what they find and what they hear. They come to the people in verse 15, they come to the land of the Gilad, and they speak to them. They don't ask the initial soft question, you know, can you explain your behavior? In their investigation, they go right for it. They lay out the claims, they lay out the concerns, they lay out what it looks like. They lay out the picture for the people and the tribes to understand what it is the Jewish people see here. And they say as follows. Verse 16. Ko amru koladas Adonai. Not koladas Israel, but koladas Hashem. The, the community of God. Maha ma'al hazeh Hashem ha'altem ba'alohei Yisrael. Lashuv hayom ya'chari Adonai b'bno seichem lachem izbayach. L'maretchem hayom ba'adonai. What did you do? Me'ila. It's, it's, it's a Geneva's hektesh. It's a, it's a theft of holiness that you've done here. What kind of act, what kind of transgression that you've, you've run away from God, that you're, you're, you're rebelling against God? What are you doing? So charge number one is with respect to God. And now they go a little bit further. In verse 17, Hama'at lanu es avon peor. Is what will happen at Peor so small in your eyes, so diminished, so minimized, something that we have not yet completed purity on all these years later? Is that something you forget about? That event at Baal Peor was at least 15 years ago. 15 years before this event, but it's clear from the elders and from Pinchas himself that they have not completed the tshuva process, the, 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 the purity process on that event. And now you're doing something more? You're doing this? What are you doing? That you bringing this upon us here? What is this? And now they go a little bit further. Now you're, 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 you're returning away, you're turning away from God. You are just a few people amongst the Jewish people. But if you're doing this, and you're rebelling against God, tomorrow it's on us. This is not just you doing something for you by yourselves. We're all connected here. We're all related here. Everything's one, we're one part of another. If you act in this manner, if you do something like this, what's going to happen to the rest of us? What are you doing? Where does this come from? How can you do such a thing? 
It's irresponsible. It's disrespectful. It's a terrible thing. So the initial set of accusations here, before we continue, is with respect to the notion of the impact on God and the impact on the rest of the population. Now it turns again. Here, watch where it goes. In verse 19, And if it's for simply because your land is not pure, it's impure, it's not perfect, then cross over the river into the land that God has had initially promised us with the land where the Mishkan of God is, where the house of God is, and take property from amongst us. We'll give it to you. They're offering cities. They're offering territory. Maybe we'll have to figure out how we're going to do it. But if that's the issue here, then come back. Don't stay here. Come across the river. We'll welcome you. Open arms. We'll reapportion in a certain fashion. However, they'll do it. Don't do this. Don't rebel. Rebelling against God. Rebelling against us. You're causing a problem. Internal civil war. You're going to wreak havoc amongst the people. That you built a Mizbeach opposed to the Mizbeach that's already God's, that's established. Now the halacha was that once Shiloh was established, all of the other altars were no longer usable. They, they fell out of use. They're not permitted. They're, they're prohibited from use. So once Shiloh was established, anything like this is essentially rebellion. It's sacrilege. And they go one step further with a specific example. Halo achan ben zerach ma'al ma'al. They finish off and they say, Achan, remember Achan? Not that long ago. You were the ones fighting the war. You led us out to battle. Achan stole, one guy stole. So what's the harm one guy stole? The harm with one guy stealing is that everyone suffered. We lost people. He didn't die alone that day. He didn't in fact die that day. He died a day later. What are you doing? Two and a half tribes, what are you doing? Explain yourselves before we come and destroy you, essentially. So their answer is essentially one of surprise. They're shocked. What do you mean? This is not our intent. We didn't mean anything by it. That's not what we were thinking of. Watch their response. They answer and they speak and they say like this. They swear in the name of God that they, it's not their intent. They swear in the name of God, all, using all names, all forms of the name of God, that this is not a rebellion, and that this is not a transgression, and that if in fact it is, and God knows it, then we shouldn't be saved from this day. We shouldn't be we, we, we shouldn't be uh, allowed to live past this day. If in fact it was a meila, it's clearly not a meila because if it was a meila, it already would have happened, perhaps. But they're swearing and they're swearing and they're swearing. The repetition, perhaps, is for emphasis. To say it twice. They continue in verse 23. 
God should then collect from us and will pay the price. If it was for the purpose of building Mizbeach to rebel against God, to go away from God, to offer up all kinds of offerings and korbanos, to do anything on that, then God should ask of us, who Yivakesh, who, who He should collect from us from what it was. They now get to what their concern was. Why did they do it in the first place? What was thinking here? Their concern was out of a worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. What's going to happen in the next generation? When your kids and our kids get together, your kids are going to say to our kids, you have no part in the Jewish people. You're on the wrong side of the river. You're not connected to the Jewish people. You settled over there. The Jewish people are over here. So in fact, one of the greatest concerns that existed at the time of Moshe about a period, a separation, a distinction, a division between the tribes, is in fact their concern all these years later. They're so concerned that the Jewish people who live in the land, the actual land of Israel, the nine and a half tribes, that their children and their descendants are going to look at these two and a half tribes and say, you're not God-fearing people, you're not part of the Jewish people, you're distant, you're away, you're not even near the Mishkan, you're not even near the Mikdash. You've settled over there, you're not connected. The natural border will serve as a border, will serve as a dividing line, will serve as a distinguishing line between our people and your people. And for that we were concerned. So what did we do? We built them as Bayach, not for use in the classic manner, but rather to serve as simply a testimony. So they said in verse 26, Vanomer, so we said, let's build a Mizbeach, an altar, not for Korbanos. That it should be a witness, a testimony, a symbol between us and you and for all the generations after us. So that we can serve together and we can worship together in one place at the same time and that nobody should be able to say to our children, you have no part in God. They say so that we can then respond to the children and to the grandchildren, to the great-grandchildren, generation after generation after generation, that it was built for a certain purpose, was built for the certain reason, not for use as, a, as an altar, but rather as a testimony. God forbid that we should do anything like this. Chas v'shalom. Lo aleinu, never, 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 never. That is not what we were intending to do. It's simply serving as testimony. So now they get an explanation. They get a full-on dissertation, discourse. This is what the reasoning was. 
So what should be the reaction? What's the reaction of the Jewish people? In verse 30, It's good. They're okay with it. They don't ask for forgiveness. There's the Dasofrim. They don't offer up any sort of a covenantal agreement moment. Nothing. They let, it's good. And Pinchas and his people, they return, and it's going to be all good. In verse 31, Now we know that you're with us, and that this was not a migla, and this was not a transgression, and this is not an abominable act. You weren't punished. You have rescued, essentially, the Jewish people from the hands of God. And they return and they speak to the people. They return with their response. The term by Davar is a term that appears in Pasha Shlach, which I think is a very interesting sort of use of tank of language here, uh, beyond the scope of this conversation. But very interesting that it's a similar terminology. And they report back. And it's good in their eyes. The Jewish people are okay with it. They understand it. And they thank God that everything was taken care of. And they didn't go to war. They don't go up to battle. They don't take down the Mizbeach, in fact. They leave it up. Right? The explanation was so good, perhaps, that they allow them to keep it and they allow it to remain. They don't ask them to take it down. They call it essentially the name as a testimony to God, a testimony to the Jewish people, a testimony to the relationship and the connection between the two camps. And it remains. Sadly, as we learn later on in Tanakh, that the tribes that are on the eastern side of the Yardin are essentially the first to go that they're in fact the first tribes to be exiled, to be lost to history. And in fact, by virtue of their location, perhaps, it is exactly why they get lost. And we don't have them. So their greatest concern was that they'd be connected, and they'd be attached, and be part of the people. But in fact, the history plays out that they do not necessarily remain that way, and it does not last as long as they had hoped from Dorenu, Dorenu, generation after generation. We continue tomorrow with chapter 23, Perak Chavkimah.